on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. How the hell are you, Francis Leach? I've been in a mad rush, so I'm just throwing this down at the last minute because there's a bit going on, as we discover on this podcast. We had to kind of wait until the Albanese government had passed through the House of Representatives its climate legislation before I could talk to Michelle O'Neill, the president of the ACTU, about that. And that conversation you're going to hear in a moment. And also, for something different, Phil Jamison. Now, if you're a rock fan like myself, you might be a Grinspoon fan. You'll know Phil's work up front of one of Australia's great rock bands. He stepped out on his own and has made his first solo album, somebody else and we'll talk to him about that but also about the music industry and working in the music industry uh, you remember the industry basically stopped dead like a shark in the water when the pandemic hit and it's kind of getting back to something like normal though what happened at splendor in the grass suggests it's a long way from normal but we'll talk to phil all about that so let's get to it michelle o'neill president of the actu the actu uh, and australian unions have been campaigning for a transition to a net zero economy and and one that doesn't leave workers behind. And after the legislation passed in Parliament this week with the support of the Greens and the Independents, the Liberals and the Nationals sat on their hands, did nothing, which is kind of like their DNA. It was a big moment, but it's only just the start. The work has to be done now. Have to get to actually implement it and make sure we look after the people most impacted. So let's jump into this conversation. I just got back from the studio at ACTU HQ and had a chat with Michelle O'Neill, and I spoke to her about it and I started by asking her just... How much of a big deal was it? It's been a really big week and hi, everybody. Francis, we've been up in Canberra. We're actually up in Canberra with this amazing gang of union members from all sorts of different unions and across the country. And that was fantastic to see them in Parliament talking about what matters for working people. This bill is supported by the movement. What is it about it that uh, has won the support of unionists and workers across the country? Because what we know about climate change is that there's not one job, one industry, one community that's not affected by it. This is not something that's happening in the future. This is something we're living the reality of every day in Australia. And we've seen those impacts of things like the fires, the floods, but even on a sort of day-to-day basis, extreme heat really impacts so many different workers. You talk to the nurses and the healthcare workers about that and it pushes up people who are being affected by that and makes their job even harder. Teachers talk about how hard it is to teach in classrooms where they can't cool them down and what that means for kids learning. And of course, if you work outside, it's dramatic, the impact. So we know that climate change is having a global impact that is going to be worse for working class people. The poorer you are, the more likely it's going to affect your food, the more likely it's going to mean that you lose your homes or live somewhere that isn't safe. So the argument that the opponents of a bill like this will put is that reducing emissions inevitably means a reduction in jobs. Are they wrong? They are wrong because it'll mean a change in jobs and we've already seen that. So again, you know, they try and say to people, oh, be scared of change. Well, workers are living the impact of change. We've seen more than a third of coal-fired power stations close already because of the impact of this. So you can't say to those workers and their communities, oh, 
you know, don't worry, it'll all be all right. The market globally, the companies, the global and Australian companies that own those power generating plants that have been reliant on fossil fuel are acting and they've been acting for a decade or more and workers in their communities are paying the price because it's not properly planned. They're not engaged and involved in saying, well, what does that mean for our job our kids' jobs, our community and our future. And that's the critical thing. Like, change is happening. We've got to put workers at the centre of it. So that's a really good point, isn't it? This is about making sure that workers who are going to be absolutely central to this huge change that we're undergoing are in the conversation, are driving the conversation that their needs are met and that their workers aren't just a, a sideshow. And just an afterthought. Yeah. Like, honestly, these are huge companies that have made massive profits over a long period of time, we need to make sure that those companies are investing as well as government and public investment in diversifying the jobs and economies in those communities and not waiting, not saying, oh, we'll do that one day. That's going to happen now. Like we need to be making sure that we're making the jobs of the future now. And if you think about renewable energy, and there's a huge potential to create jobs there. But We've learned and we know that the jobs that have been, for example, in the fossil fuel industry in the past started off as really dangerous, mm. bad jobs. And it was unions that organised workers and fought to lift the standards, the paying conditions, the safety of those jobs and have succeeded in doing that. We're not going to forget that. In the creation of new renewable energy jobs, they've got to be based in those same communities. So you're creating opportunities for people that are there and their kids, but they've also got to be good, well-paid, safe union jobs. Yeah, so this is interesting. Is It's almost like a chance to reset the terms of the economy and make secure, decent, permanent work an absolutely central feature to it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the bottom line, isn't it? Yeah. Because we can plan this and this is what's been missing and it's a shocking indictment of that previous conservative government that they abandoned really they they talked like they cared about workers and jobs scratch the surface it was not true it was a lie and it was a a vicious lie because it just meant that jobs were being lost change was happening workers had no say in it there was no proper planning and thinking about what we needed to do to make sure that People weren't mm-hmm. really badly affected and it was workers and their families that paid the price for that. It was it was a lie to those workers and to the Australian community that we didn't have to act. So we've still got a chance to reset, but how much damage has a decade of inaction on this issue done to our prospects of getting this right? Or are we still in a good place to be able to do it? Look, it's done a lot of damage. Yeah. I don't want to um, understate it. A huge missed opportunity. We could have been in front of the game in so many of these renewable energy jobs, but it's not too late. So we did some work last year with, in fact, the Business Council of Australia, as well as the Australian Conservation Foundation and WWF about where are the renewable energy jobs and the export jobs. And it showed that with the right plan and investment, you could create 400,000 jobs in Australia. Good, decent, secure people. Yeah, good jobs in renewable energy, but you had to get it right. It's not just going to be a wish. Like, It requires government planning. It requires the involvement of unions and employers in this. requires really strong and clear obligations on employers about what they must do. And, of course, it means listening to local communities who really understand what's possible. You know, you can't 
impose this from the top. You've got to talk to people in those communities about what is possible and it's got to be happening now and you've got to build a bridge. You know, you can't just say, oh, you know, wish and a prayer, it'll happen one day. Those conversations are already starting, aren't they? There are different organisations and community groups are already springing up in places like the Hunter Valley and elsewhere where they're having those conversations with workers and communities. Yeah, they are and that's good, but we need to have a national coordination of this. That's why unions talk about the importance of the climate change bill like we need those targets we need to be clear we need to be ambitious about what's going to happen and how we're going to meet those targets in Australia and globally and you know our trading partners are already in front of us on this you know we just committed to 43% in the bill that went to the House of Reps this week most of our trading partners had committed to 50% so you know we've got to pay attention because they're going to get the jump on us if we aren't setting our settings right too. So we've got to get the law right. We've got to get the government working with unions and employers to have a plan about this in a really organised, fair and fast way and then work closely with local communities and state governments and local governments to make it happen. So it's a big job to do. It's not too late, but we can't wait. It's also a great opportunity. I know it's something you and the movement have talked about a lot is the idea of a new manufacturing sector, which is built off the back of new opportunities in a net zero economy. And one of the things we learned through the pandemic wasn't that we are at the end of a lot of supply chains. We need a level of self-reliance here. And we can be a superpower in that regard in terms of what we can produce here with our incredible natural resources. That's so true. You think about, you know, we don't want to just... There's new opportunities in terms of mining many of the minerals and things that are needed in renewable energy, but we don't want to just be digging them up and sending them offshore. Like we want to have the manufacturing jobs here in Australia that actually take those materials and creates what's needed in terms of the technology and the goods that are required in the renewable energy future. We need the jobs that are going to go into upgrading the grid. Like this is massive amount of work to make all of this work. And of course, we need the jobs that are the service jobs all around that and the support for the communities that deal with those change and realise it's real people that you're working with here and, and working with people. So there's a lot of work, jobs that can be created. But I reckon I'm going to say the absolute core of this, and we know this if you look around the world, some countries have done it heaps better than other, others, is you put unions and workers in the middle of this decision making. So you were in Canberra, as you said, with lots of uh, union members and delegates there. What was your general sense? Was there a sense of optimism from them about this opportunity? Look, there's a lot to be done. There's generally a sense of optimism about we've got a new government, but also we're unionists and we know that as much as it's great to have gotten rid of the Morrison government and to be getting on with making Australia a fairer and better place for workers, you know, wages, cost of living, insecure work. We know how urgent it is that change happens to address this. So they were some of the things we're talking about as well as how climate affects all of that. But these things are connected because if we are going to get better, more secure jobs, then we should use what's happening in terms of change of climate and change of energy to make sure we drive down power prices, get a better energy system that's a renewable one we can rely on in the future and good quality jobs out of it. So there's a connection, but there's a lot of work to do. So yeah, optimistic, I'd say, but also an eye on we need change, we need it fast. Uh, Just to finish, the bill goes off to a Senate inquiry, as most of the big bills do. What will you be looking for as the president of the ACTU to come from that? 
Well, we want to make sure that we raise these issues. There's some new members of parliament and some of them have been very vocal about issues to do with climate change. They don't all understand what we've been talking about today, Francis. So we want to use the opportunity to make sure that the people who are voting on this bill understand how critical it is, not just to have a number as a target, as important as that is, and we support it, but to get to the detail of what it means for workers and their families and communities and commit to that fair approach to the transition and the change. Part of the Paris Agreement was we're meant to have done this. 46 other countries in the world have got plans about it. We haven't. We want those plans developed. We want the support. Um, We know the government's committed to this. We want the support of the parliament about it as well. Michelle O'Neill there, President of the ACTU. In a moment, Phil Jamison talks to us about life as a musician in an industry that nearly died on the slab at the start of the pandemic. On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rung. Now, what would you do if your industry just suddenly stopped and everything about it just ended? You didn't have a job. You couldn't go and look for another job in the same industry. There was no industry, just nothing. Well, that's exactly what happened to the music industry when the pandemic hit in the beginning of 2020. All those live gigs and performances that were slated to go right through the winter and into the summer, they booked them that far ahead. It all finished, and there was no guarantee as to when it would come back online. It was tough, and it wasn't just the musicians that you see on stage or listen to on the radio or see on on, on videos on YouTube or whichever platform you like. It was all of the people who work around them, the stage crew, everyone who works in the ticketing industry. Look, the list goes on and on and on. All those people suddenly found themselves without any work and without any prospect as to when they might find them back doing the thing they love. One of those people was Phil Jamison. Now, Phil uh, sings with a band called Grinspoon when they're up and about, has been doing that for the better part of 30 years now, getting close to, and he is uh, one of Australia's finest frontmen. Even he found that suddenly the work dried up, but he found a way to keep working. He'll tell us about that. And he's slowly seeing his industry come back online, but it's different, and not everybody has come back. Let's catch up with Phil. He's just made his very first solo record. Uh, it's called Somebody Else, and Phil Jamison is our guest on The Job. Phil Jamison, how the hell are you? Welcome to On The Job. Thank you. I'm pretty good. I've been on The Job, believe it or not, <laughs> so things are good. It's good to see you back out there touring and playing. Now, we need to reveal a bit of ancient history because I don't know if you know this or not, but when Grinspoon entered Triple J Unearthed all those years ago, and I think it was Lismore was the very first Unearthed, I was on that committee that looked at all those cassettes and and we plucked yours out and uh, chose Grinspoon as our very first Unearthed winners, along with, if I remember correctly, a lovely acoustic duo called Ode to a Goldfish, who, who didn't go on to the same sort of career as you did, but... Do you remember that time when you got that call from Triple J saying you guys have won the very first Unearthed? I didn't get the call. And I'll be honest, um, being from, you know, regional New South Wales, I didn't really know much about Triple J because Unearthed was at that time going simulcast nationally. And so you guys were going into these regions you hadn't been before. And Unearthed was an attempt to, I guess, promote the station. So I didn't really know what it was. I was like, we rented some competition. I don't know do your worst. <laughs> and I think I might have been at home with my mum and dad when we'd actually, we'd found out we'd won. And Pat Davin and Chris Hopes and the other members of Grinspoon, Joe Hansen, were all a bit more familiar with Triple J and were very excited. But I was like, I don't really know. And then I remember when Angela Caterns came, we did a little gig at 
Southern Cross Uni to celebrate um, with Ode to a Goldfish, Good Memory. They had a song called Undress Me, which is a bit sexy. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, we played the gig and that's when I kind of was like, oh, this might be this might be a thing. Later on, I think I kind of fully grasped what it meant and what it meant for Grinspoon was we were able to tour because it was getting played with Michael Tun on Request Fest, that song out in Dubbo and all these little regions. So we were able to actually go out and and tour and, and make a bit of money, you know, going out to those places. So that was unbelievable, massive shift in what we were going to become, yeah. And here we are nearly 30 years later and you're still doing it as a, as a working and touring musician. So let's talk about, I want to talk to you about the new record that you've done and, and all the Grinness stuff, but just the last couple of years as a touring musician, as a working musician, as someone who makes a living from music, how tough was the pandemic? It was an interesting time. It was very fortunate that I was able to tour solo and on my own. So I would travel up and down the east coast of New South Wales mainly wherever they'd have me, I would do COVID safe gigs and sometimes I'd do three a day. So the Cambridge Hotel in Newcastle or the Lansdowne Hotel in Sydney, they would set up shows and I would, there'd be a, a 2 p.m., a 5 p.m. and an 8 p.m. They'd allow 50 people in at once and I would do an hour and then do another hour and then do an hour because I needed to play. <laughs> Just I was going to go, great time to get creative and that's hence the... Uh, the record I have now is is a product of that time as well. But I still managed to play on very on the cusp of what would be considered legal. But I didn't get COVID, so we just managed to sort of make it work. When I was allowed into Victoria and I was allowed into Queensland, I quickly seized on those moments as well and was able to, to still play some shows. What was really difficult, who I felt for the most in this industry, was obviously... Uh, stage techs, sound guys, lighting guys, all that back of house crew that, that couldn't go out and, and, and sing a song. So I um, I was very fortunate through it all and managed to, through a record label named Cheer Squad, was able to kind of collate some material I'd been working on and put it out. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we did a, a podcast about 18 months ago now about the industry dropping off a cliff and all those people in that insecure work who previously just went from job to job to job and made a decent living and, and, you know, enjoyed the work they love, the work they do. Suddenly it all stopped. And because uh, the music industry and the arts industry more generally is less structured with very few entitlements, if any, there was no real immediate infrastructure around people in that industry to look after them other than the community itself, which gal- galvanised and got around to try and do what it could to assist those who suddenly saw their livelihoods vanish. Yeah, it was... Um an example also, just not the more trade style, um, people that were in musical theatre who only had like maybe a three-month contract didn't qualify for the job keeper stuff either. So they were really hung out to dry as well if you didn't qualify for that, which many, I knew many didn't actually get the job keeper thing, which was really tough. And, I mean, you would know that from having worked in musical theatre, having done American Idiot as well. So seeing that, right. that side of the arts industry as well, where it is a yeah. career. You know, you and I have all been involved in the music industry and we start out as a bit of a hobby and it becomes our job, but there's still a perception is that you're just doing it for fun and if you make a bit of money, well and good. But it's an actual job with a career and without the same sort of infrastructure around it which other people would expect in their own jobs. Yeah. When you put it like that, I haven't thought about it like that really. It definitely doesn't have the same infrastructure that 
bankers and real estates do. Um, but weirdly, I kind of like that. <laughs> I know that it may sound a little bit facetious. Yeah, it's true. I don't know whether I kind of ever thought it was a hobby for me. I was pretty, I was always fairly determined as a young teen that I was going to get a good band together and, and have a really good crack at it and we'll let the chips fall where they may. But um, when you put it like that, you're absolutely correct. It's one of those, it's, the arts industry in general is, it's a gig economy type thing. It's, it's just definitely not nine to five. It's interesting to hear the new arts minister, Tony Burke, though, talk about the arts industry. And he said in an interview I saw him do that people think about the arts in terms of what's on the wall, what's on the stage, or what they're either consuming or reading, but they don't think about the artists as workers. And there's a change in mindset, at least at government level now, to try to acknowledge that uh, even people in rock bands, you know, need to have some sort of recognition that they're actually working for a living and that that comes with a certain level of respect and protection. It does. Tony, I met Tony in 2019 when on the Shorten campaign, actually. I was really inspired by that gentleman. He's um, he's unreal and I really love how passionate he is about the arts. It's very genuine uh, and he gets it. He really does. So having someone like that now in government is makes me all heart swell with pride a bit like after the last nine years. Yeah, he's a, a great asset to the arts industry and he I saw him at the APRA Awards recently actually. But, um, yeah, he turns up. He says really intelligent things like I agree completely. I always struggle with the term job and work. <laughs> Because I do have a lot of fun. I do have a lot of fun doing this. Uh, but yes, you're right. It is exactly what you say. In terms of the music industry coming back online after COVID, has it come back online in the way that it was before? Or is it different now, Phil, uh, in terms of the way gigs are, the number of gigs, the people that you used to work with who you said before COVID were a part of the industry uh, who might have dropped off because of uh, that two and a bit year hiatus and, and just walked away from it all? It's changed. There's less people in, in crew. Uh, there's less people that we can actively employ because they've gone on and retrained and become different jobs, different work because it was so unstable over the two and a half years. The amount of cancellations and rescheduling of shows have left consumers with not a lot of confidence. So they don't often pre-buy tickets to gigs anymore. So you'll talk to anyone out there at the moment. It's really tough out there to, to get people along to gigs unless they just turn up right at the last minute because they don't want to go through the whole rigmarole of rescheduling, cancellations, you know, rebooking hotels or whatever people have gone through over the last years, which I'm incredibly sympathetic to as well. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough out there. Uh, and there is definitely less gigs. There has kind of like been this a little bit of a, a false economy because there's a lot of grants happening as well. So there's promoters that are getting international acts over on, I think Guns N' Roses were provided with quite a generous <laughs> federal government grant, which we all need a bit of gunners in our life, no doubt. So, yeah, th- there's also creates kind of that kind of false economy. Grants are fantastic, don't get me wrong. I just, maybe they could be more fortuitously placed than um, having international acts. I think maybe supporting local acts would be better. But it's different. I don't know when it might ever go back to where it was. But in saying that, I'm out there playing, I'm doing what I do. Uh, the show's good and that's all I can control really. If people want to come, that's great. If they don't want to come, that's okay as well, you know. <laughs> so you, you're out with a, a, a touring band. You've gone out solo, first solo record after 25, 27 years, maybe more with Grinspoon. How does it feel playing with different people? Oh, it's great. It's really fun. I've got a great band. Davey Lane from UMI has joined me on guitar. Uh, Sam Rains and Rob Munios, who are both Melbourne Incredible musicians as well on bass and drums, respectfully. 
I've been playing solo for about 10 years with, with many different musicians, actually. Like, so I would, I had a Melbourne trio, a Sydney trio that I'd, I'd tour with a bit, a Brisbane gang as well. Had a band in a every a port. A band in every port. Yeah, basically, basically sidemen, a sidemen gig. And so, but this has become a little more permanent because I now have an album out. And yes, just heaps of fun. I mean, I haven't released new material for 10 years. So actually seeing it getting played and going out there and creating and, you know, hearing new songs on stage live is incredibly satisfying. Makes my cup full, for want of a better term, and uh, I feel very fortunate that I have these great musicians playing with me, but also fortunate I'm able and allowed to release music. They kind of say it's easy, but it's actually a little bit tricky now with DSPs and the way, which is digital digital service providers, which is Amazon Music, Apple Music, Spotify, um, there's others as well. So the knowledge of how to service the DSPs, there's specific contractors, subcontractors you contract in to do that, which I think I'm using a service called Believe at this time, but there was Ditto before that. And then there's obviously the manufacturer of vinyl, which has become massive again, which is great. I love vinyl, but it's a backlog of trying to get vinyl, actual product in your hand. It's quite difficult. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's nothing to bitch about. It's just it throws up different challenges about how to release stuff and where you want it positioned. And I mean, I'm, I'm terrible at strategy. I just write the songs, sing them, and hopefully look good in some photos. You're doing all of that, um, but you're writing these songs now, and it's got your name on the on the cover. Like it's your brand. Green yes. Spoon was a gang. It, it is a gang. It's a group of blokes who've been together since they were teenagers, playing music that they sure. love. But it's just you out there now. Is that a little bit scary? I, I had the fear. I think fear is very, very healthy, but I really like the songs. And also I'm a really hard marker. So for it to get past me, I think, is a good level. Um, so I think the songs are really good. I love playing them. They're fairly broad in how they're – I mean, they're all pop songs, but they're broad in how they're framed. And I, I love them. So no matter whose name on it, whether it be Mr. Microwave or Happy Burrito or Phil Jamison – I really like the, the tunes and I'm really proud of them. So that makes it a little easier to have my name on the front that if I was being disingenuous and putting out just shit, which I'm not. I don't think anyway. No, you don't. You definitely don't. You did go and play at Splendour in the Mud. Uh, you've done many of a festival over the years with Grinspoon. This one has gone down in legend for all the wrong reasons. What was your Splendour experience like from being involved? Yeah, look, I did a, I gave myself a platypus challenge. I was going to be the rarest sighting at Splendour possible. So I was there for 90 minutes. Uh, 60 of that was on stage. So I drove in myself, parked, got out of my car, got changed, went on stage, sung, uh, and then got off stage, changed, went and left. So playing on a third day of a festival, what well, was the second day, but at 6 p.m. on the main stage is challenging already because there's people there that have, I've been there all weekend and, you know, there's levels of fatigue and inebriation, et cetera, et cetera. So for me to do what I needed to do to the best of my ability, that was going in, doing it and getting out. So that's kind of the way. And I guess I was doing an interview the other day and they're like, that's very professional. I'm like, well, I guess I had to do it at some point. <laughs> you know, there has to be an approach that, that was an important gig for Grinspoon. I wanted to give it the full respect it deserved. Usually I'd be at Splendour seeing bands and having a great time and not playing. So this time we were very honoured and thrilled to be part of that festival. It's a top echelon of festivals in this country. And so to be invited to have such a good slot as well, I think we have to you know make the most of that opportunity. So that involved me 
being on my absolute best behaviour and, and just going there and, and doing what I do and hopefully people were entertained, which is the main thing. It must be great to be in a band like Grinspoon to be able to step out and make the album somebody else but, you know, didn't just sort of slot back in and play these shows because the band is so well-loved all around the country that you have an audience. So you can play it in NRL Grand Final or do these other gigs when they arise and you know that uh, you're going to get together with a group of people who really love what you do. It must be uh, That must be very satisfying, Phil. It's like a nice warm cuddle, really, because we, we went on a hiatus from 2013 to around 2017 and we came back and did an anniversary tour of our first album called Guide to Better Living and we didn't really know about the affectation that, uh, that the Australian public had for us. We were unaware of it and when we went out and did that tour, we became aware and it was um, it's really, really nice. It's really lovely that, that those songs live with people and they, they're such fans of the band and they're absolutely fantastic and I'm flattered and thrilled that that's happened over the, over the course of time because you can't really manufacture that. You can't manufacture memories and feelings. It's like it has to be there. It has to be a moment for people. So, And funnily enough, when we played Splendour, there was people there that weren't even born when we released our first album. So... (laughs) Way to make you feel old. Yeah, uh, but, but, but they knew the bloody song, so like, <laughs> oh, that's a win. <laughs> yeah. Most definitely. And what about the time you were doing American doing the stage stuff? So that's turning up every night, twice on the weekend for matinees, and mm. doing the stage show, and you know having to be mm. on the whole time. What did that teach you about the sort of discipline and energy required to work in that side of the industry? I learned that the people at the musical theatre performers they work so hard. They're like doing a, a sixth harmony up the top while getting changed out of tights into a uniform to go and play another character. So they're acting, singing and dancing, doing a pirouette or something. And I'm like, oh, my God. So my role was relatively small in that touring party, but we were still doing eight shows a week. What I loved about it, I learned a lot about stagecraft and how to look after my voice and things I should have probably learned as an 18-year-old that never had the opportunity to or never wanted to because it wasn't punk rock or whatever I was thinking back then. Found a lot of great friends who are still colleagues today who I lean on for all sorts of advice about whether it be costume or wardrobe or, you know, singing or, you know, any type of movement, projection, stage stuff. Yeah, I learnt a phenomenal amount about how to keep going. And also the thing about it, this is obviously not improvisation in musical theatre. It's once you're on, you're on, and there's no deviation realistically from the script that much. So I learned a little, a fair amount of discipline really. And also whilst I was doing that, I was touring around the country with Grinspoon as well. So it was, it was a lot. I would be in Darwin and then flying back to Melbourne and then going back up. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a really exciting times to do kind of both and wear different hats in, in both arenas. But yeah, I had an absolute ball. I really want to do it again. I'd love to do it again. <laughs> it's so, so much fun. You've become a song and dance man after all these years. Yeah, maybe I always was. <laughs> you know, maybe I always was a song and dance man. It just, you know, the, it had to be kind of opened and then I was like, oh, this is where I want to be, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And how proud are you to have made uh, somebody else and, to, you know, to take your record out on the road? Yeah, I think uh, Wally Kempton from Cheer Squad originally heard somebody else, the single, while I was shooting the video in Melbourne last year. He kind of came along to the video shoot and was like, this sounds good. And so I was like, oh, thank you. I've got another song. And we kind of were working out we might put out a seven-inch um, with just two songs. And they're like, I think I might have some more songs. And he's like, great. So we ended up doing a 12-inch. And I was over the moon that Cheer Squad have come on board and helped with this. It's a, They're great people. They get it. Dave Lang's been unreal in, in looking after the publicity of this of this whole thing. And 
I'm immensely proud of it, but also really grateful because it is a solo record for all intensive purposes, but there's a massive team behind it as well. I couldn't have done it without Davey Lane and Oscar Dawson who helped produce and other various musicians around the country. But, yeah, from originally going from two songs to eight, people complained it was only eight songs. I'm like, well, it was going to be two, so let's just be happy. <laughs> you know what? You know, back in the day when you bought a vinyl album, it used to clock in. If it clocked in over 45 minutes, I reckon there was too much gristle on it. And the, yeah. some of the greatest records of all time are clocked in well under 40 minutes, 35 Yes. I wasn't really. I wasn't trying to be comparative. I was just trying to. Essentially, it's a creative reset for me. These songs have been sitting with me for ten years, some less, but you know, around that era when Grinspoon went on hiatus, and I was like, "What am I going to do?" So, it's great to have that kind of creative reset and go. Right, it's great to be done. I can move on to the next thing. They're not sitting with me, and not not, not that they're an anchor. But they can somewhat weigh you down a little bit, I think, in some ways. So it's good to get rid of that. Grinspoon itself, you played at Splendour. Is there uh, more Grinspoon music on the way or is that still a conversation you need to have with the other guys? I'm having a Zoom tomorrow with them, actually, about that. I think the solo release was like, what's Phil doing? (laughs) What's going on here? So I think it might have, like, you know, caused a few embers to be lit. I'm never saying never to anything at this point. I've got some other songs on the boil that probably don't fit in that frame of Grinspoon. But, yeah, we'll see we'll, we'll see where it takes us. I'd love to do a great track. I'm not sure about doing a whole album, but, yeah, I'd love to do something. But, yeah, anything at this point. I mean, you know, my calendar's fairly clear for the rest of the year, so I'm ready. Ready to go. We are so glad to uh, see that you've released the album, uh, somebody else, and uh, to get you on the road. And, and it's great to see Australian music back up on two feet after what's been three really horrific years for everyone involved. Thank you so much, Phil, for being on the job with us. Thanks, Francis. With Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, this is On The Job. There he is, Phil Jamison, lead singer of Grinspoon, when they're playing, and they'll be out there doing it again soon, as he indicated, but at the moment, out there promoting his album, Somebody Else, which is on all your favourite platforms, if you want to find it. I think it's going to get a physical release at some stage, uh, a vinyl release, for those of you who are still in love with your analogue sounds, like myself. That's it for this week's On The Job. Hope you've enjoyed it. My name is Francis Leach, and I'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>